Thank you. Our last case on the calendar today is State versus Bradshaw, and we will hear from the appellant. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Jim Doggett, and I represent the state in this appeal, and I'd like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. Your Honors, this appeal is about a district attorney who tried to cover up a crime. That district attorney, Wallace Bradshaw, learned that one of his employees, Cindy Blitzer, had stopped performing the work that the state was paying her to do. After the SBI received a tip about this crime, the SBI reached out to Mr. Bradshaw to try to find out if, if his employee really was defrauding the state. Mr. Bradshaw agreed to speak with the SBI, but he decided not to tell the truth when he spoke with them. Even though he knew this employee had gone nearly a year without performing any work for the state at all, he told the SBI that his employee worked on so-called special projects that he made up. And he also told his employee, or he also told the SBI rather, that his employee worked on assignments that she had long since completed and were long, long over. After Mr. Bradshaw spoke to the SBI, the SBI continued its investigation and many months passed before it was finally able to discover that Mr. Bradshaw had lied and that his employee really had defrauded the state. Um, after all these facts and more came out at a two-week jury trial, Mr. Bradshaw was convicted of, of obstruction of justice. Um, the Court of Appeals, however, reversed that, uh, that conviction because it believed there was not sufficient evidence to show that Mr. Bradshaw had obstructed justice by lying to the SBI. The Court of Appeals was mistaken, and the jury's verdict should be reinstated for two principal reasons. First, um, the record is clear that Mr. Bradshaw lied to the SBI. And in fact, Mr. Bradshaw concedes in a footnote on page 16 of his brief in this court that there is, in fact, sufficient evidence to show that at least cer certain of his statements to the SBI were incorrect. Second, uh, uh, Mr. Bradshaw also obstructed justice because his lies did, in fact, obstruct the investigation. And again, Mr. Bradshaw comes close in his brief to conceding that they did, in fact, obstruct the, uh, obstruct the investigation. Mr. Bradshaw seems to agree that if a witness provides a government investigator with false leads knowingly, and the investigator then follows up on those leads and discovers that they're not true, then obstruction has occurred. And as, and as, I'll, and, and as I'll explain today, that's exactly what happened here. But to address my first point first, there's clearly evidence in the record sufficient to show that Mr. Bradshaw lied to the SBI. Um, like I just indicated, Mr. Bradshaw lied when he said that his employee worked on so-called special projects. And that concession isn't a surprise because there's testimony in the record that Mr. Bradshaw himself characterized his claim about special projects as a story that he was going to go with when he spoke to investigators. But Mr. Bradshaw didn't solely lie about special projects. He also lied about his employees' work on so-called conflicts cases, which were cases that were transferred to Mr. Bradshaw's office because other district attorneys had conflicts that prevented them from working on those cases. Mr. Bradshaw told the SBI that his employee, Cindy Blitzer, worked on conflicts cases even though he knew that nearly half a year had passed since she had last worked on a conflicts case. And now Mr. Bradshaw, in his brief, he claims that um, that statement was not a lie because the SBI supposedly, when it spoke to Mr. Bradshaw, didn't indicate that they were investigating um, his employee, Ms. Blitzer's current work. 
been said was just, just vaguely didn't specify what they were interested in, actually. But that's just, not, that's just not correct. The testimony in the record shows that the SBI actually asked Mr. Bradshaw what his employee was doing and what work she was working on. Statements like that refer to continuous work. They're in the past progressive tense. They indicate a curiosity about what's going on at the moment the person is speaking. And so for that record, and so for that basis, it's clear that there's sufficient evidence in the record to know that, to show that Mr. Bradshaw should have understood that he was being asked about Ms. Blitzer's current work and not her past work. And to the extent there was even any disagreement about what was said in terms of when the SBI interviewed Mr. Bradshaw about what the specific questions were, what his responses were, those disputes really wouldn't provide a proper basis for sustaining a motion to dismiss, which is what's at issue here. In fact, just a couple months ago, in State v. Tucker, this court held that disputes like that about the meaning of what's said in testimony are disputes that really go to the weight of the evidence, not the sufficiency, and so therefore don't provide a proper basis for a motion to dismiss. How should we look at these lies or half-truths that the defendant gave the investigating agent in terms of what the Court of Appeals says that it did not really change the agent's investigative path, and as such, it would not be obstruction of justice because the agent was still continuing to go through with his investigation irrespective of the lies? Thank you, Justice Morgan. I was just about to get to that. I'm glad I set you up. Perfect. So Mr. Bradshaw's lies weren't simply lies that took place in a vacuum. They also had a concrete effect on the SBI's investigation, and that's so for two reasons. First, the record here shows that after Mr. Bradshaw spoke to the SBI, the SBI did actually follow up with other witnesses about the leads that he had given them, specifically about special projects and conflicts cases, and the SBI agent discovered that Mr. Bradshaw had lied, and that's significant because in State v. Cousin, the Court of Appeals held that when investigators receive false leads and follow up on them and discover they're false, then that satisfies obstruction of justice. That is obstruction of justice, and throughout this case, Mr. Bradshaw has seemed to agree that State v. Cousin is correctly decided. Does Cousin apply to the extent, then, that we should equate misrepresentations, lies, half-truths with some concerted effort to make sure that justice is somehow covered in such a way that it leads an investigation into a different direction when it really does not go in a different direction the way that the investigator has designed his or her investigative process? I don't think State v. Cousin holds that there needs to be, that an investigation has to veer widely off course because of a misrepresentation. I think State v. Cousin holds that it's enough simply that an investigator follows up with a witness about a representation that's been made by another witness and discovers that the initial representation was false, and in that way, it changes the course of the investigation. Is it a matter of degree in terms of the extent to which it changes anything, or is it the State's position that anything that is not representative of a full-throated truth is therefore obstruction of justice? Well, it sounds like Justice Morgan is asking for some sort of limiting principle here, and the one I would suggest is that 
is that if someone lies about something that's immaterial to an investigation, then that almost certainly will not obstruct justice. For example, if I were to speak um, to you all and tell you, uh, you know, lie about what my favorite sports team is or something like that, and the purpose of this investigation was not to find out what sports teams I like, that would not obstruct the investigation. But that's not what we have here. Here, um, Agent Whitley, the SBA agent who spoke to Mr. Batcher, was extremely clear about what his the purpose of his, of his investigation was. He specified that he was trying to figure out what work Ms. Blitzer, Mr. Batcher employees did, Mr. Mr. Bradshaw's employee did. Um, and then Mr. Bradshaw immediately went and lied to him about that. Immediately after he said, this is what I'd like to do, this is my investigative path, and Mr. Bradshaw lied about those direct issues um, that were at the core, at the heart of this investigation. So not every lie in the course of an investigation necessarily obstructs justice, but one that is a material lie certainly does. And there's no question, there can be no dispute here, that this lie was a material lie. But when you say that, are you saying that, there, that, that a material lie per se uh, obstructs justice, or does there have to be some proof <coughs> that some sort of additional investigative work was done in order to satisfy that component of the test? Well, I have a, 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 a two-part response to that uh, question. I'll, I'll, I'll take either one. Oh, great. Uh, so first off, I think it's entirely possible that just a lie standing alone that is material, as long as an investigator believes it, obstructs, uh, obstructs justice. And that's because a lie throws sand in the gears of an investigation. We, do, we don't have that here, do we? Well, that's, yeah, this, this case we have much stronger evidence here. Well, actually, the facts do Well, do what, what we've got here is a case where, at least as I understand the record, and if I misunderstand it, correct me, that after receiving the information that he got from the, Mr. Bradshaw, that Agent Whitley then went out and talked to some other folks to, for the purpose of ascertaining whether what Mr. Bradshaw said was true. And at least if I'm understanding your colleagues' argument, and they are fully capable of telling me I misunderstand it if I do, uh, their argument seems to me to be, in essence, you've got to show you talk to somebody that you ordinarily wouldn't have talked to or something like that in order for this second prong of the test to be met. What's your, what's your response to that argument, assuming that that's the one that they're making? I think, I think, that, is, I think that is the argument they're making. And, and my response would first be that I don't think that degree of proof is necessary. But even if it is necessary, I think it, if you grant the state the benefit of all reasonable inferences and in looking at the evidence, we do have evidence that that is exactly what happened. And the reason is that there was actually expressed testimony at trial that the SBA agent who spoke to Mr. Bradshaw said that things that Mr. Bradshaw told him that ended up not being true expend, expanded the number of witnesses that he had to speak with. Um, and Mr. Bradshaw in his briefing has argued that, um, that actually that testimony, which is very clear, it's hard to think of clearer testimony that could, that, that, that could satisfy the test that we've been talking about, um, is actually not sufficient because it's supposedly conclusory because uh, uh, the, uh, the witness, uh, who's, uh, who, uh, uh, the SBI agent who spoke with Mr. Bradshaw didn't uh, clearly uh, specify in his testimony what the, false, what the specific false statements were that led him to speak um, with additional witnesses. But, but really, if you look at the whole context of his testimony, it wasn't really conclusory at all. And that's for a couple reasons. So, the, the, the SBI agent testified that Mr. Bradshaw's statements made him speak to additional witnesses after he'd also testified that Mr. Bradshaw had told him um, that he had worked, uh, that, that his employee had worked on special projects and complex cases. 
And after he said that Mr. Bradshaw's statements made him believe um, uh, that, um, uh, uh, that those statements made him believe that his employee was working, and after he also testified that the only reason he was going around interviewing witnesses in the first place was to find out if, uh, if uh, Mrs. Brad Mr. Bradshaw's employee really was working. And then on top of all that, he also, he also clarified later on in his testimony that once he found out that Mr. Bradshaw wasn't really working, it was unnecessary to speak to all these additional witnesses in the first place. So we've got an enormous amount of testimony here that, that contextualizes the statement um, that Agent Whitley, the SBI agent, made when he said that he had to speak to additional witnesses because of, because of Mr. Bradshaw's lies. I have a slightly different question about how we assess this element of the offense that, that um, the obstruction, and in this case, caused the investigator to interview people he didn't otherwise have to. And my question is, what is the proper baseline? And by that I mean, are we asking, did he have to do more work than he would have had to do if the defendant had told him the truth? Or if the, if the defendant had just remained silent? Because he didn't have to talk to investigators at all, right? He didn't have to give them any information at all. So why wouldn't the question be, did the investigator have to do more than he would have had to do if, if he'd had no information? I, I understand your question. I think that's something that's really a jury question. It's really a factual question about thinking through the very complicated counterfactuals that would have to happen as a place, uh, you know, figuring out if, if A had happened, then would B and C happened, and if B and C had happened, then would D and F have happened, and if that had happened. It's all a very complicated factual question that involves sort of natural reasoning about the facts. So I think it's really a jury question. But even if the baseline here is, um, is simply um, if Mr. Bradshaw had stayed entirely silent and said nothing at all, his statements here did require extra effort during, uh, during the investigation. And that's because he said, and Mr. Bradshaw concedes that there's sufficient evidence that he lied about this, um, that there were no special projects at all, that he made it up, that it was a story that he told to, um, just, just, to, just, to, uh, just to shut up the investigators and get them to you know, leave him alone, you know, to, um, to, to try to trick them into believing that Ms. Blister was working. Um, um, and, and, and regardless, and even if he had stayed silent um, when he, uh, in, 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 instead of saying that, um, uh, the SBA agent still had to ask, ask, ask questions about that and try to figure out what was really going on. Because his lies about complex cases and special projects threw, threw, sand, threw sand in the gears of the investigation and required to, to him to spend not only time interviewing people, but also trying to uh, spend time interviewing people trying to figure out if Mr. Bradshaw had told the truth. I, 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 I think I understand what you're saying, but I guess my question is, um, for the purposes of determining whether the um, evidence was sufficient uh, on the motion to dismiss, yes. um, and of course taking the inferences in the evidence in the, in the light most favorable to the state, there's, it seems to me if, if, if Mr. Bradshaw had said nothing and the investigators still would have had to interview all these other people to find out whether this person was or was not working, then, then was the furnishing of this false information really obstructing? I guess that's my question. Yes, it was, because, Ms. because Agent Whitley not only had to interview those people, he also had to verify whether or not Mr. Bradshaw had told the truth. And if that's simply a matter of a couple minutes, or a couple, or 20 minutes, or 30 minutes, or an hour that you spent with every additional witness, cumulatively, 
trying to find out if special projects were true, trying to find out if conflict cases exist. Well, what do you mean? Like if a witness says, well, what do you mean there were no special projects? Did you hear anything about that? I didn't hear anything about that. Did you? Well, maybe he heard about that. Were there any special projects? No. All of that stuff adds up, adds extra time um, to the amount of time that an investigation takes. And again, just to underscore here, there's also testimony in the record, and the Court of Appeals noted this in its recitation of the facts in this case as well, too, that it appears that Mr. Bratcher intentionally told this lie to try to avoid answering questions and avoid answering, answering truthfully that he knew that Ms. Blitzer wasn't doing any work. Um, I mean, these lies allowed Mr. Bratcher to give a straight-faced reply to what was going on that allowed him to obfuscate what was going on and delay for months the undercovering of his employee's fraud and also the fact that he had supervised that fraud and knew what was going on. I, if, if this court were to rule um, that such painstaking evidence needs to be presented of how exactly a lie during an investigation has obstructed justice, it could make it extraordinarily difficult to obtain obstruction convictions in the future. It'd be very difficult indeed, because it would be necessary to reconstruct a casual chain of exactly how an investigation would have proceeded otherwise. But fortunately, this is a very simple case. Um, we have a concession here from Mr. Bradshaw that there is sufficient evidence in the record to show that he lied to the SBI about a material aspect of his investigation, that his employee worked on fake projects that didn't exist, that never existed, um, and just based on the testimony in the record, it appears that he intentionally told that lie to throw investors off the case. You've continued to include uh, conflict cases with special projects, and uh, to help me to understand just to what extent, again, we're talking about lies and half-truths and mistruths uh, amounting to obstruction of justice in the state's view. Uh, when you talk about conflict cases, I believe the record reflects that there was only one, the Shockley case, Correct. and that was the only one, and it was over fairly soon. Well, there, well actually, 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 there may have been a couple other conflicts cases as well, but they were completed long before the Shockley case was finished. All right. Uh, is that tantamount to talking about conflict cases, is that tantamount to obstruction of justice because it was past tense and he represented them as being in the present tense or that he pluralized it and made it seem as though there was more than one when there was really just one? Uh, or is it something else that made conflict cases, although a kernel of truth, but yet not as misrepresentative as conflict cases, I'm sorry, as uh, special projects where there were none, uh, how do you put those two together or should we as a court differentiate uh, based on what may be a matter of degree? Well, I think, it's, I, I think that, that is false once you take the evidence and the testimony in the light most favorable to the state. And that's because based on the testimony, it appears that Agent Whitley, when he spoke to Mr. Bradshaw and, and asked him questions and told him what the purpose of the investigation was, he asked about continuing work. And he did that by saying he wanted to know um, what Mrs. Blitzer was doing. He wanted to know what sort of work she was working on. Those types of questions don't refer to the past. They refer to the present. They refer to continuing work. And thus it was a lie for Mr. Bradshaw to say that um, his employee worked on conflicts cases when he in fact knew that if five months had passed um, since she had done that at all. So it sounds like there's some nuancing here. And I'm not trying to be picky, but I just want to be exact. Right. Uh, so from the standpoint of even uh, something that is completely untrue, you're even saying that on those matters where there could be some 
uh, children may call it fudging, even if there may be some fudging about uh, special projects, that's still the fact that the verb tense was a misrepresentation. That's sufficient also to be in the category of, of obstructing of justice, obstruction of justice. Uh, I wouldn't really call it fudging. I think it's it's pretty. It's much more severe than that. I mean, it's it's imagine if someone came to me and said, uh, "Are you employed by the North Carolina Department of Justice?" And I said, "Yes, I am employed by the North Carolina Department of Justice." But actually, I had been fired five months ago. I mean, how is that true? It's a blatant lie, and that's exactly what Mr. Bratcher, Mr. Bratcher did here. And when the testimony is viewed in the light most favorable to the state, a statement like that has to be false. It simply has to be. It's really just a question for the jury. And it comes back to this court's decision in State v. Tucker that I mentioned a little while ago. That case involved a dispute about a domestic, violent, a domestic violence protective order. And the dispute specifically involved someone who was um, uh, arrested for violating the order. And um, he, uh, the main issue in the case was whether or not he knew that the order was in place when he was arrested and when he violated the order. And someone at the arrest said, you know that there's a, there, that there's a protective order in place, don't you? And he said, oh, I know. And then a dispute arose afterwards about whether or not what he really knew was that there was a prior order in place that had expired or an order that was still in effect today. And the Court of Appeals reversed that conviction, saying there was not sufficient evidence. This court unanimously reversed. And it said questions like this about the, the meaning of testimony, about the meaning of what I know is, really go to the weight of the evidence and not the sufficiency of the evidence. And so I think that case is very telling here um, in assessing whether or not there's sufficient evidence in this case. And also another point I'd like to make too, referring to another one of this court's cases, um, and that's State v. Taylor. Um, here, to get a full appreciation of why Mr. Bradshaw lied when he referred to complex cases, you really have to read the entire testimony and see what questions were asked him, read those questions in the light most favorable to the state, and read it as a whole in context. And this court reached the same conclusion in State v. Taylor, which was a case about whether or not a district attorney who had been threatened um, with death had been threatened, had, whether or not true threats had been made that could be prosecuted under the First Amendment. And there, this court held that it was necessary to look at the whole context of the statements that were made. You couldn't just look at one statement out of context and said, in the abstract, is this a true threat? You had to look at the overall context of what was in the record and assess whether or not it was true or, or whether or not it was a true threat or not. And this, this case really just requires the same exercise here. It's necessary to look at all of the testimony um, from Agent Whitley about his interview with Mr. Bradshaw and, um, uh, and assess whether or not uh, uh, his statement was true within the context of that entire testimony once all inferences are granted in the state's favor and once the evidence is viewed in the, in, in the light most favorable to the state. Um, so unless there are any further questions, I'd like to uh, reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you. Here from the FLE. Good afternoon. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Michelle Goldman, and I'm here to represent Mr. Wallace Bradshaw as appellee. Wallace Bradshaw is not the most sympathetic defendant to appear before this court. He held a position of power and trust. He made a terrible mistake when he devised an AOC-approved plan to help himself and the Blitzers work around our state's anti-nepotism laws. Though his wife, Pam, earned every penny of state money she was paid, the Blitzers were the poster couple for why anti-nepotism laws exist. 
Mr. Bradshaw was held accountable and punished for his mistake. He lost his job, his law license, his freedom, and the respect of his community. The state wants more. It is trying to expand the reach of felony obstruction of justice beyond any previous decision of our appellate courts to get yet another pound of flesh from Mr. Bradshaw. Mr. Bradshaw asks this court to require more than impressions of falsehoods and unsupported statements about needing to look into things that ended up being untrue. He asked this court to require what it always has when reviewing a sufficiency claim, actual evidence. The Court of Appeals understood the state's overreach and its decision should be affirmed. Maybe I'm going to start in reverse order here, but uh, you, you referred to unsupported assertions of an effect. What support is required uh, in your view, Ms. Goldman? Well, I think there would have to be evidence that um, Agent Whitley, that, well, that there would have to be evidence that first Mr. Bradshaw said something that was demonstrably false. I assume we'll get to that in a second. That's, that's, <laughs> yes, uh, let, and let's, that, let's assume for purposes of discussion. Well, I think you've conceded that this, uh, there's, the Court of Appeals didn't hear by finding that there was uh, sufficient evidence to support a finding that the special project statement was not true. I have not you, raised that issue before this court. It's, I think you've that's, not brought it forward either. I'm sorry? It, it wasn't brought forward either. What? It was not brought okay. forward, but that, I, I believe that's different than a concession. Okay, okay. Point, point taken, yeah. Okay. Um, but, but what the state needs to prove for an obstruction charge like this, when it's alleging false facts were, were given to Agent Whitley, it has to establish a nexus between whatever that fact is that it's relying on and some obstructive effect. And it simply did not do that here. Um, and I, you know, so, I, I, so, so in, in your view, what should we require that the state do in attempting to go about making such a showing? And I realize that's a, something of a hypothetical question, but I don't know another way to put it. The state could have asked Agent Whitley, first of all, identified the, the false statement that we're talking about, because it never did that, and then said, what did you do in response to that false statement? And then. Agent Whitley could have said what he did, and then a reasonable jury could have decided whether that effect, in fact, obstructed, impeded, hindered, um, or prevented Agent Whitley from doing his investigation. And, and there simply wasn't that evidence. When I say that this court should require actual evidence, that's exactly what I'm referring to. The state sort of blurs past that by asking this court to consider the context of, um, of Mr. Bradshaw's statements. And I, I encourage and invite the court to do that as well. And I think that the court will, read, will reach an, a different conclusion than the state uh, would have it reach. Here, when Whitley talked about the purpose of this interview, he explained that it was preliminary. He explained that he was just trying to get background information and he fully expected to have to interview Mr. Bradshaw again. He was looking for information about um, where, she, where Cindy worked, what, um, 
her job description was, which Mr. Bradshaw candidly said, I don't have a job description for her. He asked what she was supposed to do, and Mr. Bradshaw said she's supposed to work on conflict cases and do special projects for me and do overflow work for District 17A. Um, that is that is not saying that these are things that Cindy Blitzer is currently doing. He was never asked that question, um, and he never talked about having to do any additional investigation as a result of any false statement that Mr. Bradshaw made. In fact, he acknowledged that he asked Mr. Bradshaw for names of people who had contact or worked with Cindy Blitzer, 9A employees. Mr. Bradshaw gave him names, and those people, in fact, had contact and or worked with Cindy Blitzer. Now, Whitley, Agent Whitley, would have known at that time that those people did not currently work with Cindy Blitzer because Mr. Bradshaw had already told Agent Whitley that Cindy Blitzer had not for a long time worked in a District 9A office, that she was working in Rockingham County or at her house. Um, and so that demonstrates concretely that Whitley's, Agent Whitley's focus was, as he testified, on getting information about historical facts concerning Cindy Blitzer's employment. Well, to, to, to go back to my earlier question, at least at one point in the transcript, I think it's at page 1191, and this is the testimony that the state typically relies on with respect to the second issue. As a result of this prosecutor, as a result of that information that you received from the defendant, you have to go to look into things that he told you that ended up not being true. Whitley, that's correct. State, what kinds of things did you have to look into? Well, that expanded the list of people that had to be interviewed because we basically had to interview the bulk of the employees from each county. We also had to run down the leads for the State Ethics Commission. We had to conduct an interview with the Administrative Office of the Courts, and that's my addition there, to determine whether permission was given for an employee sharing program, that kind of thing. There were quite a few things to do. Okay, the lead sheet, which I gather is the list of what we did, would have looked a lot different had the information from defendant been different. Now, why isn't that enough to show that there was a change in the way that the investigation was conducted as a result of what uh, Mr. Bradshaw told us? There's a couple of reasons, Your Honor. First of all, um, it's very vague as to what uh, Agent Whitley was talking about, things that he had to look into that ended up not being true. And the state then says that these, this list are all things that Agent Whitley is saying were not true, but that's not correct and cannot be correct. He doesn't say, he doesn't identify any false statement that, that he's referring to when he says that expanded the list of people. And we know from Agent Whitley's testimony at page 1137 of the transcript that he learned and I'll, I'll just read the court from there, um, that he, he initially thought that the inter he was going to have to have more than one session, but he kept an open mind. He said he could have been given information that Ms. Blitzer was working, and that would have shortened his lead sheet. Um, and then skipping ahead, 
He said, so from the interview, I gained knowledge that there were a number of, in of individuals who could have worked with Cindy Blitzer. All of those names had to be interviewed. And that was true. And those, those names were the people that Mr. Bradshaw gave Agent Whitley that had worked or had contact with her. Uh, he re uh, I received information that it could have been arrangement through the state bar or it could have been something maybe sanctioned by the ex ethics committee. These were leads that had to be run down. Those are the same things that he's saying in the, in the portion of the transcript Your Honor read. And, um, and there was no allegation that Mr. Bradshaw's statements about the ethics committee were false. So it's simply not true to say that what he's describing there was a list of things he had to do based on false information. Is, is it, so your, your contention is that one that the jury could not even reasonably infer from what the portions of the record that you and I have gone over with here that there was extra work involved because of what Mr. Bradshaw told uh, Agent Whitley? Yes, and they certainly, a rational juror could not have found beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Bradshaw made a false statement, which is not identified in that excerpt, uh, that impeded, obstructed, or hindered his investigation. He just failed to do it. Now, if that evidence existed, one would assume the state would have asked. One would assume the state would have said, what things are you talking about? What did he say that was untrue? The state, you know, in a Monday morning quarterback fashion is now trying to, you know, identify things that, that it claims were untrue. But that's not what the testimony was at trial. And the, the concerning thing is, you know, this kind of, this, this is, which is the state's best evidence that he, that he obstructed this investigation. Well, I, I, I would assume if I was responding to a sufficiency of the evidence, I would want to get my best evidence in front of folks. Or certainly. But the, the, this kind of a statement that is this vague would not support a determination of probable cause for a search warrant. It certainly cannot substantiate a, a, a rational, reasonable finding of proof beyond a reasonable doubt and, and should not be held to do that. And I think, you know, I, I share the state's uh, hope that the court will read the entirety of the transcript and, um, and see what Agent Whitley testified to about the context of this interview. It was background information he was getting. And he was trying to collect documents that would substantiate work that Cindy Blitzer had actually done. That's what he asked Mr. Bradshaw for when, about the special uh, projects statement. Before you move on, uh, we had discussion in the briefs, and I don't know that Mr. Doggett talked about it, but there was this reference to this significant burden language that appears in Cousins. Uh, is, is it the, your contention that that language is actually part of the test? The state seems to contend <coughs> not. What, what's your view? I think that to, to sustain a, a guilty verdict for an obstruction of justice, there has to be evidence that something is more than like mere, merely trivial. Like what the state would say, a, a question about whether or not, a question to Cindy Blitzer about whether or not she ever did a special project for Mr. Bradshaw. I, I don't see how that can support an obstruction of justice claim, not because it's not substantial, 
but because if you look at the definition of obstruction of justice, it has to prevent, obstruct, Correct, impede, whatever. Yeah, they're, they're, they're bigger verbs. <laughs> well, what, is the state required to show that whatever the defendant did posed a, or created a, quote, significant burden, close quote, upon the investigative activities of the law enforcement agents that were involved? Significant enough to rise to the level of the definition of obstruction is what I would say. So that your, your contention is that wording by itself is not part of the test, is part of the test? I, I, don't, I don't think that it, you know, in, unless the court construes that as being the same as um, what the words, the verbs in the definition of obstruction mean, then I, I don't think that has any special meaning. I, it, it makes sense to me because those verbs connote something more substantial than a single question, which is what the state would rely on here. And the state says that, well, he had to ask all these other people whether or not she had done special projects, but that's not true. He said she did special projects at my direction. He wasn't sure what those special projects were, and he, even, you know, asked, he indicated that he would talk to her to try to figure it out, and um, Agent Whitley said, don't, don't talk to her, and um, he didn't at that point. So, you know, when, you know, the only time, the only evidence of that statement about special projects having any impact on the investigation was in May of 2017 when the Blitzers were interviewed, and Agent Whitley asked um, whether or not, asked Cindy Blitzer whether or not she had done special projects, and she said no. So it was one question at an interview that she confessed to her crime, and that shut down the investigation. It ended it. So there's nothing about, other than him having to articulate a single question that could be, you know, deemed to be an obstruction of justice. And I think if you look at the definition of obstruction of justice, it doesn't meet the definition. I do want to go back and talk a little bit about the state's claims that um, Mr. Bradshaw lied when he said Cindy worked on conflict cases. Before you do that, I want to okay. do a follow-up for one of Justice Irvin's questions about the um, exchange on transcript page 1191. And I want to make sure I understand your position. Um, as I understood the exchange between you all, you were saying that um, the agents, this is an um, examination of, of Agent Whitley, um, and he said that he ended up looking, having to look into things that, because of what defendant said that wasn't true, and that that made his list of people to interview longer than it would have otherwise been. Um, and you said that, if I'm understanding, if I'm understanding it correctly, that it didn't match up to anything specific that was not true? Is it, your, is it your position that it's not enough in this part of the testimony for um, the agent to say, he told me things that weren't true and I had to interview a bunch more people to straighten that out, basically, that's a paraphrase. Um, but it instead, the agent has to say, he told me things that weren't true and those were specifically X, Y, and Z, and because of those things I interviewed you know, A, B, and C additional witnesses? Is that what you're saying? Yes. I, I believe that's the minimum of what's required. Even if he did those specifics somewhere else in his testimony? 
If he did that somewhere else in his testimony, that would be one thing. I don't believe he did. I don't think he identified a single person. I don't think he identified a single lie. I mean, the state, in retrospect, is, is saying the lies were um, special projects and, um, and that she worked on conflicts statements, uh, conflict cases. But Agent Whitley never identified those two things as lies. He didn't. Well, if, if uh, just for the sake of this discussion, as if the transcript does reflect that he did identify those things or somebody did for him um, identify those as lies and that as a result of those lies, um, he had to interview additional witnesses and his lead sheet looked different because he had to do more things. Um, would that be enough? I don't, I don't believe so. I think he has to identify what he's talking about as having an impact on his investigation. I don't think it's enough to just summarily talk about things that somebody told you without identifying what those are because there's this nexus requirement, right? The, the indictment says, you know, made false or fabricated statements that had this obstructive effect. Or that, um, or that's what's required, and he just didn't do that. There was no testimony about what statements he's even referring to, and that kind of summary, conclusory language that that the state is relying on, like I said before, would not even get you a search warrant. Like, how can that kind of language be sufficient for proof beyond a reasonable doubt? But in an effort to give trial courts some guidance then as to, to the extent that a line can be identified as to what may go over into what is significantly material enough to constitute obstruction of justice versus what we have here, which you contend on behalf of the defendant is not material enough, can we draw a line that you can articulate or is this just something that is just so fact specific that it just has to be on a case-by-case -case basis? I think that it has to be, it has to be on a case-by-case -case basis to see what evidence the state presented as with any sufficiency of evidence claim. I don't think that um, making broad statements like Agent Whitley made here could possibly be enough. And I think that the state's um, argument, argument about um, that a, a statement that deals with the material aspect of the investigation is enough, um, has any support in the case law, and it fails to identify what courts should use to determine materiality. And I, I, I believe that's um, what Your Honor is asking. Right. Um, and I think that the only way to reasonably make that determination of materiality that the state is asking for is to look and see whether or not um, it impacted the investigation. Did what the person said that the state is claiming was false impact the investigation? Well, and that's a good place to continue because when you say uh, to the extent that uh, it impacted, uh, the state would say, well, it impacted it to the extent that some witnesses, which may have been on the list to interview anyway, the interviews went longer than necessary, which therefore consumed more time for the investigator, which therefore went towards 
more that needed to be done to complete the investigation in terms of the content and so forth. What would be deemed to be, if you can articulate it, uh, a significant enough impact? Or again, is that merely on a case-by-case -case basis? I, I think my response would be the same as it was earlier, which is that it, it has to rise to the level of something that obstructs. And things that obstruct have some sig significant impact on an investigation, not just a single question that is asked during the course of an interview that would have occurred regardless of what Mr. Bradshaw said. So is significant, quote unquote, going to be in the eyes of the trial court as to whether or not uh, to do what a trial court may do or even before that in terms of a district attorney deciding what to charge? I think that there has to be, you know, unless the charge is so vague that it can't be fairly applied, there has to be some baseline for what the words prevent, obstruct, impede, hinder, mean. And, and, and I think that they, by common understanding of the language, mean some, something more than a single question, which is all the state can really point to here. Uh, I, I think I want to try to go back a little bit to um, some of one of the questions that Justice Earls asked uh, about, well, w Mr. Bradshaw didn't have to sit for this interview, and how do we kind of deal with that or factor that in here, and what does that mean in terms of how we look at the obstructive effect? Um, and I think that that point is really an important one to think about when we decide or when this court considers whether the state has made its case, at least about the conflicts statement, that that was a false statement. The state's argument there really boils down to a, a claim that Mr. Bradshaw should have volunteered additional information. It's not, the state agrees. She worked on conflict cases, and that's what Mr. Bradshaw said. That's what's in the transcript. But the state says he should have said more. He should have volunteered that she hadn't done so in five months, and his failure to do that um, turns his statement into a lie. The, it, you know, Mr. Bradshaw was under no obligation to volunteer information that was not requested <coughs> of him. He was charged with making an obstruct uh, by he was charged with obstructing by making a false or fabricated statement. He was not charged with failing to volunteer information. And as this court's decision, the part of this court's decision in Dietenhafer that dealt with the um, accessory after the fact, recognized the difference between charging somebody for an omission versus an act, and that those were significant differences in an indictment. Mr. Bradshaw had a Fifth Amendment right not to answer any question Agent Whitley asked him. He could have invoked that right not to answer any question Agent Whitley asked if he didn't want to answer. Is there, is there any case that undertakes an analysis that requires a comparison of the effect on the investigation between silence and a misstatement? I don't know that there's such a case, but I would ask the court to consider what it would mean in this context to say that Mr. Bradshaw was required to volunteer more information than he was specifically requested. And requiring him to do that would circumvent his right to assert a Fifth Amendment privilege 
by holding him criminally liable for his failure to answer a question he wasn't asked. Does that? I, I, I think I understand your argument, and when I, that's what I usually try to make sure get a, get done during argument session. Is just to make sure what both sides are saying, so I can uh -huh. evaluate it. So I think we I think we're there. Okay. Um, and as I said before, the troubling part of the state's context argument is that it wholly ignores Whitley's testimony about the purposes of his interview. If the court looks through the transcript carefully as both sides are asking, Whitley's plan for the day was to document work that Cindy, quote, may have actually done and to talk to people that, quote, would have worked with her. And those are at transcript pages 1134 to 35 and 1185. Mr. Bradshaw gave Whitley names of the people he requested and Agent Whitley never said that, he, he actually said they did. Those, those people matched the description I asked for. And so there was nothing in his interview of the people in, in District 9A that um, showed any obstruction on the part of Mr. Bradshaw. I do, uh, the state talks about state versus Tucker, and I, I believe that these cases could not be more different. In Tucker, as counsel indicated, there was a videotape of the domestic violence victim saying, I have a domestic violence protection order, and the defendant saying, I know. That was evidence that this court found was sufficient to take the case to the jury. Unlike what the state, that's unlike what the state is doing here. The evidence in Tucker did not require words to be put into the defendant's mouth without evidence. The state's discussion of um, verb tenses that Agent Whitley could have meant when he testified is simply not evidence that Mr. Bradshaw made the statements the state needs him to have made to make this case. If he had, if he had said in the present tense, Cindy Blitzer's still working, she's doing this work, this would be a different case potentially if, if he had then testified about the obstructive effect that caused him. And he didn't. Uh, that also, um, I wanted to just touch briefly on um, the state's points about, he talked about State versus Taylor, and he cites additional cases that um, use the context of statements to determine their nature. None of those cases that, that the state cites implicated Fifth Amendment rights. Mr. Bradshaw had no obligation to offer information he was not asked, and had he been asked for information that might have incriminated him, he could have declined to answer. He wasn't given that opportunity because according to this, the evidence the state presented, he was never asked a direct question about what Cindy Blitzer was currently doing. Second, the state claims um, that because Cindy's confession ended the investigation, if Mr. Bradshaw had said that Cindy Blitzer had no work to do, that too would have ended or shortened the investigation. But that's not what Agent Whitley said. The only thing Agent Whitley testified about that he said, the counterfactual that would have changed his investigation was if Wallace Bradshaw 
had given him evidence that Cindy was working and proved that to him, it would have shortened his investigation. That's the only testimony Whitley gave about how a specific statement that Wallace Bradshaw could have given would have changed the course of this investigation. And of course, that would have been obstruction because she wasn't working. Obstruction of justice is a crime designed to shield the integrity of legal and public justice. What the state is asking for here is a perversion of that purpose. The state is defending its use of a baseless obstruction of justice charge as a sword to punish Mr. Bradshaw for his failure to accept a plea deal. Expanding the crime of obstruction of justice to include honest answers to broad questions, answers that had no demonstrated obstructive effect on the investigation will not serve anyone's interests. Rather, it will discourage people from cooperating with investigations. If honest answers can be recast as lies and proof of an obstructive effect is no longer required, submitting to a police interview will be a trap for all but the clairvoyant. There is nothing remarkable in the Court of Appeals opinion. It merely required substantial evidence to support the charge and found that evidence lacking because it was. Mr. Bradshaw respectfully asked this court to affirm the Court of Appeals or hold that the state's petition was improvidently allowed. The court has no further questions. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. May it please the court, I'd just like to make um, a few brief uh, additional statements before we finish up for the afternoon. Um, first, I'd just like to, to reassert that this is really a simple case. Mr. Bradshaw tried to uh, step away from his concession that there was sufficient evidence to show that he lied about special projects, uh, but he made that concession in his brief and we have to accept it. And also, again, I don't think I didn't hear any dispute from Mr. Bradshaw that um, the SBI agent in this case did in fact have to follow up with witnesses about his lies and find out that they were false. That's obstruction of justice no matter how you slice it. It's incredibly simple. Um, and the second point I'd just like to make too um, about uh, Mr. Bradshaw's claim about conflicts cases, he kind of suggested that you can't be held liable for um, failing to say something, for making a statement that um, is only false in context. And I would just point to this case that this, this court's recent decision in, in Desmond versus News and Observer, which refutes that. Because there, the News and Observer was held liable not necessarily for something that it said being false, but because something that it said was false in context. Because it didn't reveal the full context in which statements had been made. It didn't reveal um, what questions had been asked to elicit um, uh, the testimony at issue. And that's exactly what we have here, that Mr. Bradshaw did say that Ms. Blitzer worked on conf conflicts cases, but he admitted to say something that was incredibly material to that and that made the statement when viewed in context absolutely false. Um, so the state would just respectfully request um, that the Court of Appeals be reversed and the jury's verdict for obstruction of justice, which was conducted after a two-week trial, be reinstated. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, both counsel. Clerk. All rise.